So let's uh, listen together to, uh, first of all, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Um, This is the Apostle Paul speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says here, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And then Ephesians Uh, probably an even more familiar passage than the first one. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's God's word for us tonight. The canons of Dort that uh, we're reviewing together came out of the great Synod of Dort of 1618-19, exactly 400 years ago is when it met, and it's one of our confessions. It's what we believe as a church, Um, and you might have noticed in visiting other churches, some churches are pretty vague about their beliefs. Um, Maybe they'll say, we... For us, we've got no creed but Christ, or we, we just believe in the Bible. And I'm sure groups of Christians and churches that, that say those things mean well with those ideas, and it's a nice sentiment and all, but the fact is there are different ways to interpret the Bible. And people have different understandings of who Christ is. As a church, um, we have three creeds and three confessions uh, that outline what we believe. And that makes it pretty easy for a guest or a new believer to know where faith is coming from in terms of, of what we believe about God's Word. The creeds obviously are the bigger picture of faith for the most part, right? That's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed the Athanasian Creed, and then the Confessions, Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort, get into a bit more detail. Even, even those are, are summaries, really, but they're certainly more detailed than the uh, ecumenical creeds. The Canons give some more detail on especially our view of salvation. And as we continue to review what we believe in the canons uh, together in this little series, our approach, I think, should be um, a hearty appreciation for our Reformed faith, but, but also humbly recognizing that there are some differences of opinions among Christians on some of these matters, and, and not just immediately demonize other interpretations or those who want to simply say, hey, we've got no creed but Christ, but, it, but instead know enough about what we believe to cherish it and be able to explain to others a bit of why we believe this approach is best and biblical. And you know, if you're in a conversation with someone and they're like, oh, you're at a Christian Reformed church, are you guys Calvinists? And you're like, yeah. And they're like, what about this? If you don't have an immediate answer, just say, hey, I'd love to talk more about it and, you know, do a little, do a little more research if, if you don't have it in the, the tip of your, uh, you know, right in the front of your brain to share. And, and, and then, uh, you know, you'll learn a little bit yourself 
as you research it. Uh, but really, for the most part, the five points about salvation in the canons uh, were, were, were really basically shared by every church that came out of the Protestant Reformation. It's virtually uh, the same idea of what salvation is as Lutherans and Anglicans and Congregationalists and Presbyterians um, and even Baptists on this biblical view of salvation. And, and they all, at the time of the Reformation, went back to recovering uh, the teachings of the early church on this, and especially the early church father, Augustine. But then in the early 1600s, a group in the church, uh, the Remonstrants, wrote up an attack against the historic view of salvation and the, the historic view of God's grace. And, and they organized their teaching in five points. And that's why there are five teachings, five doctrines in the canons, because they wanted to point by point respond to the articles of the remonstrance. And that's why there, there's all these articles. Article, you know, we read Article 6, whatever. Um, they're responding to the articles of the remonstrance. And as you know, I think the letters of, of Tulip have helped people remember those five points. Unconditional election is about how God's grace and salvation was planned out and conceived in eternity. Limited or definite atonement tells us how God's grace is merited, how it's earned, how it's received, and that's through Christ's death and resurrection. Total depravity is about our pressing need for God's grace. And now, irresistible grace, and this is about the nature of God's grace and how it gets to us. And, and, and what I, what I want to do is just simply talk about um, how much and why we need irresistible grace, what it is, and then finally, what are a few practical applications of this teaching. First, uh, why we need this kind of grace, irresistible grace. It's because of total depravity that we re reviewed last week, which tells us just what the extent of sin is. You know, for example, that it's more of an inward problem than an outward problem. Uh, the outward stuff, humanity's sinful actions and words, which uh, the course of history has shown are bad enough, well, the sinful words and actions Ours and the whole world, they're just the tip of the iceberg. And, and, and you know, right, uh, you learn in school that what's under the surface of, of the water for icebergs and not visible is much larger than what's visible and on the outside that everyone can see. In fact, um, I learned that generally 90% 90% of an iceberg's volume and mass is under the water, unseen. And I had no idea it was that much. I thought maybe, you know, 90%. And in a similar way, with our sin, as much as we lament our sinful actions and words, the vast majority of humankind's sin is buried inside. It's not readily visible. And that's one reason John Calvin says that even the most 
pious and serious of Christians is probably aware of no more than 1% of their sin. There's more we said about sin last week and the extent of it, but uh, ultimately in the end it's a death sentence. And Romans 3 says that the wages of sin is death. One way people have described humankind's lostness and sin condition, and maybe you've heard this before, is to say that, well, it's like people are drowning and God needs to rescue them, and that's salvation. Uh, But the reality is the situation is worse than that. God does need to rescue us, but we're not drowning. People aren't drowning. People are already drowned lifeless at the bottom of the sea. And that's where sin and the devil leave us. Um, Article 6 gets at that, what we read, with the light of nature and the law cannot do, God has to perform by the operation of his his Holy Spirit. Uh, So grace is the biblical term for what God gives us despite our condition and despite the fact that it's our fault that we're in the condition we're in. So, what is this grace? And we're going to talk about that just a little bit. In our 1 Corinthians text, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. You may very well have heard how Dwight L. Moody once saw a drunken man staggering down uh, West Madison Street, and he said, There, but for the grace of God, go I. And that's become a very popular little saying, and it seems to have originated from Moody. Um, What did he mean by that? He meant that where he was in his life, who he was, the fact that um, he wasn't homeless in the street, well, it was not due to anything great in himself. It was not by his own works, as Ephesians 2 puts it, but it was due to God's gracious favor. Paul has a similar sentiment when he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's similar, but it really goes even further. And, And when Paul said this, he described more than a personal experience, though it was a personal experience, But he was also revealing an amazing and great truth about God, about salvation, about God's grace to us sinners. He was saying, in effect, that every good thing in his life was a gift of God. His salvation, that dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road, his willingness to sacrifice all things in the service of God, the missionary heart and spirit that he had that made him go on all those missionary journeys, the organized and deeply theological mind that he must have had to write what he did, especially a book like Romans, whatever personal peace and assurance he had, his ability, as he wrote, to fight the good fight of faith, as he encouraged Timothy to also do, to persevere through tremendously great suffering. All of that and so much more in his life that we know they were the gift of God. In fact, it wasn't just what he had and what he did, but who he was down 
to the depth of his being and soul. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And if nothing else tonight, I'd like you to take that truth home. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's memorize that, let's own it, and, and, and let's let it impact our life and character with thankfulness uh, as you think about um, li- the challenges you've had in life, but, but yet where you are today. By the grace of God, I am what I am. What is grace? Well, Ephesians 2 talks about the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the gift of God. And practically speaking, I want to read what someone once said about it because it's something I think we can grab onto in our, practic- in our everyday life. So this is what was written, and I, I don't know who did it. it might have- when a person works an eight-hour day, and receives a fair day's pay for his time, that's a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for her performance, that's a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for their long service or high achievements, we call that an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that's a picture of God's unmerited favor. And and that's what we mean when we're talking about the grace of God. As we continue to think about the meaning of grace, um, there there are three little points and thoughts Uh, First of all, grace is a free gift. It's free. And you think, well, why do we have to say it's a free gift? Gifts are free by definition, right? But we know in this world that's not necessarily the case. If you, you know, through the mail or even online, we're offered all sorts of things for free. Uh, But if you respond, uh, you'll often find out very quickly that uh, it's not free at all. There are all sorts of strings attached. It's false advertising. And uh, this is so much true in the world around us that we have a saying, nothing in life comes for free, right? Um, But God's gift of grace, you know what? It doesn't come, it comes into our lives, but it doesn't come from this life. It comes from above into our lives. And that gift is the only one that is absolutely free, no strings attached, no conditions. We don't have to repay God for this gift, and in fact, we can't. And, and as you sometimes hear, all, really all we have to do is open the gift. And we don't need to be suspicious or leery of it because it's totally different from any gift that you could possibly get in this world. It's truly free. And then when, when we do open the gift and, and we see and receive God's grace, we learn that even that ability to open the gift is by God's grace too, as Article 14 was explaining and giving some details about. God's grace is free, it's unmerited, 
which means we don't deserve it. It means we do not earn God's grace and salvation. We're saved by grace, not by works. Uh, We don't have to work for it or pay for it. And in fact, uh, we we wouldn't have the funds to do it if we could. And we could take it a step further. Not only is grace unmerited, we demerited it because the wages of sin is death. We not only don't deserve grace, we deserve punishment, the Bible says. We deserve hell. Uh, So we not only don't get punished, which is great in itself, but we get grace. And in addition to some of these ideas, free gift, unmerited, grace is irresistible or effectual. And uh, the famous uh, teacher and preacher, R.C. Sproul, would use that word instead of irresistible, effectual. Irresistible, and he does that because irresistible can sometimes be misunderstood, and it may convey to someone that God uh, drags his people uh, kicking and screaming, like in, in they're not willing to go, and and also irresistible. It, it seems that idea seems to go against the history of the human race. That you know, history is filled, we know, with people uh, resisting God. But but what this type of grace in doctrine means is that despite our resistance, God's grace is so powerful that it is yet effectual in our lives. What irresistible might convey is that God forces people to do something against their will. Uh, But instead, the way God works is more by wooing us, winning us over irresistibly, Kind of like how I got Sarah to be my wife. And, and we don't have the time for the details, but you can ask her uh, afterwards how I, I won her over and how I wooed her and brought her flowers. And, 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 and so it's not, a forcing, it, it's not a forcing in a bad way, but it is a force, this irresistible grace of God. It is a force in our lives. John 6, says that unless the Father draws a person, a sinner will not believe. In John 21, it's described like the force of a fisherman dragging a net. The fish are caught. And it's the same biblical word that's used for Paul being dragged to prison. So there's definitely a force there. There's definitely a power. And for some people, it takes a long time, and they're resisting hard all the way. But the Spirit, with His powerful love, will eventually break down our walls and change our wills so that we turn to the Lord. And I've heard um, wonderful stories about this type of grace, despite resistance, uh, from people both who have grown up in the family of God and, and, and God called them over the years and were part of the church and also those who, who were outside of the church. The Bible teaches us how lost we are in sin so that on our own we do not seek God, not one of us. And so if we naturally, all of us, resist God and His call, it just makes sense that God's call has to be 
irresistible. I want to conclude with just a, a few little applications of this. Uh, and, and one is that there is great assurance of our salvation to be found in this doctrine. And we need all the assurance of faith that we can get, at least I do, because as, as even as long-time believers, we can doubt and we know our faith is weak sometimes. Uh, we know we disappoint the Lord yet in our lives and it grieves us terribly. And, and when that happens and we're thinking about that and, and, and praying to God about it, um, it can make us wonder, boy, what kind of a Christian am I? Or even in darkest moments, maybe uh, you've said or or we say, am I even a Christian at all with this kind of attitude, with this kind of behavior that I have sometimes, with these kinds of thoughts? The canons as a whole, I think, are the most biblical approach to our salvation and they provide us with the most assurance because they point us to the Lord and His sovereign power in salvation. And they point to our weakness and inability, which rings true. It's very, right? Uh, we're, we're very weak. Uh, once, once a Christian criticized another Christian's testimony and, and, and they were sharing, talking, about each each other and the Lord. and But this Christian said, hey, um, I, I appreciated all that you're sharing about what God has done for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in this. And the other Christian who had been sharing his testimony was like, oh yeah, I apologize for that. I really should have told you about my part. My part was running away, and his part was running after me until he caught me. If you look into your own heart um, as we doubt and as we're aware of our sin, isn't irresistible or effectual grace the only explanation for how any of us could be a believer? But thankfully, what God wants, God gets, including you and me. Praise the Lord. Second application is that it makes us thankful Christians. Thankful not to ourselves for finding the salvation, this great prize, uh, but we know that we can never do that on our own. But thankful to God, giving the honor, giving honor where it's due in salvation. And, and as you think about what you're thankful for this Thanksgiving week, add to the list, I'm thankful for God's sovereign and irresistible grace and, and uh, add to the list Paul's words, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And any blessings that you appreciate as a family or friends as you're hanging out together, by the grace of God, this is what we have. And, and just a, a third and final thought is that irresistible grace is a great inspiration to evangelism. It's, it's, evangelism can, is, is a challenge, I think, for all believers in all churches, but when we evangelize with faith in the Lord, 
looking to the Spirit of God, uh, we have hope. Uh, The church, right, part of the mission of the church, big part, is that we are about proclaiming the gospel and getting the gospel out. And that's the outward call of the gospel that Article 11 was talking about. The outward call by our words, by our deeds. So we do that. That's our call. We, we want people to turn to Jesus. Irresistible grace tells us that as we are doing that, in addition to that outward call, there's also an inward call going on in the hearts of God's children by the Spirit uh, that can't be resisted. It, it means we know there will be results to the gospel. People will respond because God's call and God's grace is effectual. It will always have effect. So be assured tonight of your salvation if you believe in Jesus. Give thanks for God's gift of grace. Let's share it with our words, with our actions. It's free, unlike any gift in this world. It's unmerited, thank goodness, because we can't earn it, and it's effectual. It woos us, so we can't resist uh, the lover of our soul. It's truly amazing. Let's go to God in thankful prayer. Oh Lord, thank you that uh, we could learn more about you tonight in your word and uh, the summary of, of your word uh, from uh, some uh, great Christians in the past. Help us, Lord, uh, to stand on that grace, to, to share the grace. May it give us great assurance in our lives. Make it, may it make us thankful people. Oh God, and may it have uh, great results in the hearts and lives of even people that um, we as a church and we as individuals are, are seeking uh, to reach so that they might uh, know the Lord too. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.